Hi, this is Steve Knoll from Conley's Guitars, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. My guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Steve Now, better known as Nully, from Collins Guitars. Uh, great to have you on the podcast, Steve. Well, thank you so much, man. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, um, it's really interesting, this. I'm, I'm looking forward to this chat. I think I'm going to learn a lot. But um, I'm sort of fascinated. I'd like to chat a bit about Collins, obviously, but I'd also like to chat about um, about how how you sort of ended up there. And, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a fascinating company in so many respects. And I wondered if you'd just give us a, a bit of a sense how you got into it. Yeah, well, you caught me sort of in a melancholy mood. Today's the fifth anniversary of Bill's passing. And so I've been reflecting uh, a lot all day. Uh, I'm not a very sentimental guy, but I've been reflecting on Bill and, and how I got here and all that stuff today. So perfect timing. Um, I'm a frustrated guitar player and uh, found a guitar after, you know, I would trade one guitar in for the next, just trying to find what the perfect guitar was, not understanding scale length or neck shape or, or anything. Um, and then I found one guitar that just blew me away and I tried to figure out what made it different. And uh, that led me to the back of that ad in Guitar Player Magazine for Roberto Venn School of Luthery. And I was in school at the time to be marine biologist. And right. I was like, well, you know, I just weighed the options and and went to Roberto Van, rolled the dice. And as soon as I got there, I knew that I'd made the right choice. I just really love it. Um, the wood guitars, the other guys are, are similar to me. You know, I found my place and, uh, and I really fell in love with acoustic guitars and I still am. And my goal was to go work for a place that made high end acoustic guitars, really nice acoustic guitars. Cause I wanted to be a good guitar builder and uh, didn't get a gig right out of school, so I was working repair and restoration in Boulder. And then about a, six months or a year into that, I got a call from Steve McCurry here offering me a job. And and I've been here, that was 2000 or 2001, so I've been here about 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Love it. And, Love and, it. And what was that first guitar that blew you away that got you into all of this? I, these guys know it. It was a Loudon. It was a mahogany cedar top Loudon that had no business being as good as it is. And, and so I just started digging because it sounded completely different from all the guitars that, that in all the magazines that I read were the, the great guitars. And there was just some magic in that guitar. And so I just started digging. The top was too thick, uh, you know, according to what was the common theme for guitars in the 80s um the stringers in the neck were interesting to me and so i just started digging and this is sort of pre-internet you know and mm, yeah. and and so there wasn't youtube and a million videos to show you exactly what's going on so you had to do your own research and that's what led me to guitar building school which then it was like, well, here's these guys with all this experience that I can bother with all these questions. And, and, and I'm still asking questions, you know, it's, that's the great part of this job is you never get to be truly, you don't ever know everything because it's constantly changing and you're constantly getting better and learning new things. It's never boring. Really and there's always new problems. Yeah. 
And what they, you know, just listening to a few interviews with guitar makers, and like it, it sounds like a big part of the appeal is problem solving. It's you know, it's it's coming up against it, something new and working out how to fix it. Yeah, that guitar building is problem solving. It a hundred percent. And and the beautiful thing about guitar builders is we're all trying to skin the same cat, but we all have different ways about going about it. And so we'll share information. Bill would always share whatever he did with anybody that asked because outside of the the big guys, you're not going to make any money doing it. And so we're all here. Our guitars are different than Loudons are different than Santa Cruz. There's room for all of us. They're all a little bit different or a lot different in some cases. And so, so all of us work together. It's, it's incredible. Every week I'm asking questions. Somebody else is asking me questions and we just share, share, share and try to get better and better and better. And does it, feel like a kind of collaborative space to be I don't just mean Collings but the sort of the guitar building world in general I mean a lot of industries are really hyper competitive rather than collaborative and people don't share anything yeah yeah it still amazes me that it happens and it's completely real and you know after 20 years I have friends that are running other companies I have friends that are their own company I've got friends that are garage builders and everybody shares. And if I don't have the answer, I'll send you to a guy that might, uh, as long as you circle back and tell me the answer too. And a lot of it's finish issues because finish is its own science. Um, but a lot of it is, is really simple stuff. How do you get the binding on what glue do you use? It's just, you know, we're not building the same guitars that we were when I started or that we were 10 years ago. We're constantly trying to improve them. And part of that is that collaboration with other builders. Um, Bill would do it with Bob Taylor. They were friends. Not that we built the same guitars at all, but they had a mutual respect. And that's what it comes down to, a mutual respect for other people that are in this business. I was talking to the Loudon guys at the NAMM show and David said it exactly that. It's just a mutual respect because we know how hard it is to make these damn things. And so it's like a little brotherhood in a way. And and that's the part that's still surprising and completely yeah. real and so refreshing too because it's not cutthroat. It would be so easy just to keep all of our little secrets here, but it doesn't do anybody any good, us either. We can't grow. And it's we can't learn anything. And it's really interesting the, about hearing sort of interviews with Bill in in the past and him sort of saying, you know, that it's it's sort of a bean counter's nightmare making guitars. And, you know, most of it's not driven by business <laughs> yeah. sense. It's driven by passion and curiosity. And, you know, it's not driven by what a lot of businesses are. Right. And Bill was famous for that. I mean, guitars, then mandolins, then electric guitars. And we already had a good reputation for making flat tops. And as a young guy here, it made me crazy. We're already good. We're there. Stop. And he would always be tweaking. What happens if I change the filler strip? What happens if I change? And always experimenting. And then mandolins and electrics and then the Waterloo line and then cases. And we had five different product lines, which is just an impossible business model because none of them are adding to the bottom line. Every other one is a distraction from the other one. But Bill would follow his passion. And 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 that's how I just said something really negative, but I don't mean it in a negative way. That was the beauty of Bill 
if he had an interest, he would pursue it to the nth degree and make that. Those cases are the most beautiful cases you've ever seen. Ukuleles in 2008, you know. In, in, in Bill's mind, we could build a ukulele in three hours and happy days, we're here again. And in reality, there's just as hard to make as a guitar it, the way that we made them. And so you just went along for the ride, you know, and, and that was the fun part. And that's the thing, like once you get into anything, if you're curious and passionate and care about it, you're not just going to knock it out. You're going to end up getting totally obsessed by that. And, yeah, you know, it, ne it never ends, does it? No. And I would come up at random hours on a Sunday night to put something in clamps or take something out or do a little something. Every time I came to work, no matter what hours, Bill was here. I mean, Bill was passionate. Um not obsessive, but passionate and would always be trying to improve whatever it was. And, and I get it now, but at the time I didn't because, because we were making great guitars. Let's just focus on that. And, and now I understand that that's not good enough. You, everybody else is, is chasing and doing their best work. And so it elevates everybody. And that, that focus and that drive that he had, and he was just a, bigger than life personality, he can engage the whole crew to go along with him on this. And, you know, he was the owner, but he wasn't the boss. He, he didn't boss anybody, but we all went along because we wanted to be part of that trip, you know, and, and that's what I miss. And that, um, just get a real sense of it being about like a drug. There's a, there's a quote, actually, I mean, there's, there's things that I, I've heard you say in interviews and or seen written and things that I've, heard come from Bill and it, like, they sort of they really overlap it's that sense of I think one of the quotes from you is we fix things the customer would never see we fix them for ourselves yeah. and it's yeah. that sense of like there's lots of things you could get away with and nobody would know but you'd know oh every day every, I mean it's happened probably five times today people come to me what do you think man and the answer is always like no fix it and and when I was I knew I was doing this interview today and I went to lunch with another guy that's been here forever and I said, what, what are, how do you describe Colleen's guitars? Because I've been in this bubble so long, it's hard to, to put it into words. And he says, we're chasing perfection. I'm paraphrasing, but we're chasing perfection. And that means we're building the same guitar about four or five times. And, and there hasn't been a guitar that goes from A to Z, start to finish, without going backwards and us nitpicking and fixing those little things. And... And we'll never stop that because that's who we are. And so those of us that have been here forever understand it. And it's about training the new guys and, and gals uh, that that's who we are and what we do. And it's the thing that you're very proud of. And it's the thing that makes you crazy at the same time. Because we could ship something that has a tiny burn on it that nobody will ever see. But we won't be able to sleep at night. As ridiculous as that is. And we just work really hard at making the best guitars that we can and that's what keeps us going and that must make you must drive your finance department mad because you're building the best thing you can build you're not building to a budget and then doing the best you can do within that budget if you're building the best thing you could possibly do you've then got to put a price in it that makes at least break even we sort of do it backwards we we try to make the budget fit what we're doing not what we're doing fit the budget and it's the opposite of a business and get bad guitars hard to build a good guitars 
really hard to build and what we're building, which I consider really great guitars, are, are just a struggle every day. And so it's, you know, this crew works so hard and, and I get to do interviews and stuff, but I'm representing these guys that come in every day that nobody knows their name and they all work so hard and you can't come in and phone it in at any minute of any day. You have to, you have to really be passionate about it and we're fortunate to have a really great crew yeah and it sounds like the people side of it um like the people side of it is a really important thing um it's not just about getting people who can who can do things it's about it's about getting a team together i i, I know that you go back to the school you trained at to recruit people um, i do yeah and and you know i remember you saying something in an interview about you used to look for skill and now you look for people who are trainable and are a team player. Yeah. And and, and it's a it's a funny journey because like the business I work for, we went through a phase of just trying to work out how to recruit. And something somebody said to us totally shifted our perspective. A, guy, a consultant came in and he said, the thing is, you're not recruiting for people who've got the best skills. Like you're recruiting for people you can work with. There's no room in your business for brilliant assholes. And I just thought that's fa- <laughs> yeah. that's fantastic. That's yeah. However good they are, if they don't fit your team, they're not for you. Yeah. Yeah. And we were smart enough that we're learning um, to audition people now. And the audition is as much for the people to see if they want to work here on a concrete floor with these 50 animals or or if they want to do something else. And we don't I tell them right up front, I don't expect you to do a good job. I'm I'm looking to see if you listen and if you're trainable and then it's up to you, the rest, if you want to work with us. Um, because it's, it is a mentally exhausting and in some ways physically exhausting job for the first year or two that you work here. And it just doesn't make any sense. Why would we work so hard at this thing? Nobody's ever going to notice. Um, and so I lose a lot of guys at the first lease, you know, they just, they'll go do something that's easier and pays better. Um, so staffing is a major concern, but once they're here, they're part of the team and and that team can do anything and and we've asked a lot of them the last couple of years and they've stepped up and done an, an amazing job yeah and I imagine the last couple of years you know in terms of just being able to do the job in the first place and how you get a bunch of people in the same space has been hard but also i would imagine on top of that you've probably seen demand rocket from people being at home and you know everybody yeah. i've talked to who is involved in the music world and whether it's the guys providing video lessons at artist works or people selling instruments or people making like yeah. everybody's like just yeah. demand rocketed. Yeah, completely. So everybody's in the same boat. And, and then at the same time, somehow the workforce seemed to have shrunk and nobody's coming out to work. And so we're balancing that on top of supply chain and everything else. But all, all credit goes to these guys for, for keeping it going. Everybody's wearing several hats here now and, and the guitars look better than ever, in my opinion. Is there anything that, um, like having to change processes to accommodate a pandemic, is there anything that came out of that that you've kept that actually turned out to be a good, a good change? No. Well, if I reflect on it for a minute, I'm sure there's been several things. The, the thing that I miss the most is uh, during the, the height of COVID, when we came back, everybody got furloughed for 10 weeks while we figured out what was going on. And um, when we came back, we came back 
with two separate shifts. So half the crew was here in the morning, half the crew was here in the evening. And production has never cycled better. It was incredible. Everybody came at six and everybody left at three. Everybody came at 3.30, everybody left at 12.30. And the communication and the teamwork and the throughput, it was gorgeous. But uh, that went away as the stages went down and we're guitar builders. We don't like structure. You know, we chose this alternative lifestyle for a reason. And so there is no schedule anymore where everybody comes in at the same time and takes break at the same time and, and on and on and on. And that's good for the employees and terrible for production. So what I learned is what was possible, what I'm missing now. But, uh, you know, it's something that it's a balancing act. Uh, my job is to always be looking for more efficiencies and trying trying to increase throughput even by a little without affecting the quality. And COVID taught us a lot of little little things that we have in place now that save two minutes, three minutes. Mm. Um, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with Bob Taylor since Bill passed. And he drills into me lean, lean manufacturing, lean manufacturing, and we will never be lean. But there is some benefit to thinking in that way. Um, and COVID allowed us to do that because everybody had to stay six feet apart and, and, and everybody was segregated. So in a lot of cases, we moved the tools to the employees rather than employees going back and forth, passing three other guys because masks and everything. So a lot of those little things, Bob Taylor's voice ringing in my ear, COVID kind of sped all that up to assist in our production. And, and like with, I sort of I guess like you go back to the what I consider the golden ears, era of guitar building, like thirties and forties. Presumably, like what they had in their favor then was just labor was really really cheap. They didn't have these tools that gave them the efficiencies or the even necessarily the consistency that you guys have. But they they could put hours and hours into a product because labor didn't cost that much. Probably was right. cheap. And and it, right. so going in if you if you tot up what goes into the cost of a, a Collings flat top guitar, for example. Is it is labor by far the biggest cost rather than materials, or is it sort of fairly evenly split or no, it's it's all labor. I mean it's the great, 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 great majority of what the price tag on our guitar is the people that are, are making it. Uh, materials have gone up significantly. The quality of the materials has decreased the wood isn't as good as it was 20 years ago and that's just the way it is and if you want that good wood you're paying exorbitant prices for it that that we don't feel quite right passing on to the customer unless they're requesting a really special build um so it's well anything any stringed instrument is wood design and craftsmanship. So the wood's a little more expensive, but we can control the quality of that because we have great suppliers and long relationships. The design is there. So the rest of it is craftsmanship and that's the labor. And we don't have starter jobs here. We have jobs. There is no career progression. So you are on the job training for wherever we have a need, assuming it, it suits your skill set. We won't put you someplace that you can't work out well. But, you know, 
an easy job is a six month train. There are no easy jobs, but the, the, mm. you know what I mean? It's yeah. And training takes away from, from whoever is training them as well. And so we're trying to be really good about turnover and, and show the employees that we love them and hopefully make a good place for them to come work. But it's labor, 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 especially when you rework something four or five times for an invisible problem. It's labor. Hmm. And it's like in terms of a, a sort of workforce and a sort of size of the business is the another thing I'm, I'm sure I heard in an interview was just the idea that if you if you grew much more than you are now, something would have to give. I think, I think, it, I think you said something yeah. along the lines: if we if we grow much more, something would give, and it wouldn't be a Collins anymore. Wow. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't remember saying it, but it does sound like something I would say. Yeah, that's totally. I agree. Um, we are solidly in our lane, and uh, there will be less curveballs now. All the curveballs came from Bill. And as much as we enjoyed that, they didn't always make sense, either in terms of production or financially. Um, so in order to protect my crew and, and, and bring new talent in, we're having to pay closer attention to what makes money, what doesn't make money, what, what is possible. Um, money is not the driving force in the business at all, but it is something that in the past several years we've been paying attention to. And, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but, you know, again, we're guitar makers. We don't know from business. But, yeah, growing. I would like to grow um, to a comfortable point where my lead times are less. But if I hired 50 guys now, I don't want to lay 30 guys off next year because we got through our back orders. Um, mm. It's not that simple. It wouldn't happen that quickly. But. But I, we're, I'd still like to grow a little bit because I know I'm going to lose people. Um, so I'd like to have more guys in just to offset that loss. But we're about where we're going to be, I think, for the foreseeable future. We're not looking to make xylophones or anything. You know, we're doing what we're doing. And, and it, it makes me uncomfortable when a customer calls a dealer and wants to order a guitar and it's going to be late next year before they can get it. Uh, I'm afraid they're going to go get somebody else's guitar. So I'm trying to, and when I say I, it's we as a company, are trying to address that and make the guitars that we can, but these things take time. We're making 20 flat tops a week and 15 electrics a week, and that's as much as we can do, and a couple mandolins, and a couple Waterloos. Um, and that's, I mean, we are maxed out. Any more than that, and I'm going to break these guys. And is that is the the sort of the production is reflected like that that reflects demand I presume or is it just I mean the mandolins must be enormously labour intensive it's all the carved top stuff as well and yeah. that's they're not I mean you know it's 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 very hard to make a cheap mandolin yes that's correct and yeah mandolin demand has never mirrored uh, flat top or electric demand but it did explode during COVID same as everything else. Um, mandolin builders are a little different than electric builders and acoustic builders. It's a little, it's just a tiny different headspace mm -hmm. and you either want to, or you don't. 
And it's the same thing with my electric guys. They don't want to be acoustic guys by and large. And the same for you, you find your little niche and, and that's where you want to be. Mandolin guys are tricky. Um, we're all tricky, but, but at two a week, I'm falling behind. So I am looking for a mandolin guy. And, but that, that's, that's on my lowest tier of concern. Um, because it'll happen. You can't create one of these guys. It, it'll happen when it happens. And hmm. right now my mandolin department is one guy <laughs> and he is a killer dude. So, uh, he needs help, but he also <laughs> enjoys working by himself. So it's a, you know, I don't want to force the wrong guy on him because then it upsets his apple cart too. And I don't get more mandolins. So yeah, yeah. everything's a balancing act. And I'm saying this, like I have all the answers. I don't, I'm learning as I go. And it's because I'm really interested to ask a little bit about um, about the way that that some of the products, like some of the instruments, have developed. Because I know you work pretty closely with players on on some things, and I know you know I've interviewed yeah. um, Bob Minner, and you spent a lot of time working with Bob on the CJ45, wasn't it? The, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's the style of guitar he loves, and just hearing him play it on some of the videos, and you know, it's it's clearly an instrument that that he's got, you know, he did a Norman Blake tribute record recently that's full of yep. vintage Martins and that guitar makes it on. Yeah. Know? And they wouldn't Bob's be Bob's a special guy. Yeah. Bob, Bob is one of those guys that is just a pleasure to be around, to talk to. I love to listen to him play. With Bob, it's not so much about his hands. It's about his head. You know, he's, there's something special about that guy. And he came in and, and, in not forcefully at all, but suggested, Hey man, what do you guys think about this? And, and hung out for a couple of days and, and started the fire, you know, and, and I'm glad that he likes that guitar because man, he can play it. He makes it sound great. He does. I love, I love listening to Bob. He's, you know, for those listeners who don't know Bob Minner, he plays um, acoustic guitar with, Tim McGraw, but he's also a, a, just a, an awesome bluegrass picker, um, full of soul and yes, you know, just depth. It's it sometimes sounds like he's not playing much, but it's it's a it's a thing to listen to. That's a good way to put it. That's what I was trying to say. He's he's not he's not overly flashy. He just plays all the right things at the right time in the right way. And his solo albums are killer, and and he's a special guy. But yeah, we do. He's one example of artists that have approached us that are friends of ours that mm. that have just gently made suggestions. Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? I really like what this guitar does. I don't necessarily hear it in any of your guitars. And and as Bill used to do, we'd go backwards and well, what is it that you like about this? What is different about this than our guitars? And then uh, reverse engineer it and until everybody's happy and, and you know when it clicks because everybody's happy mm. and and the CJ45 was one of those projects yeah I remember Bill saying in an interview I know I'll be on the fretboard journal podcast years ago but just saying that he wasn't happy with an instrument until it was the go-to instrument for that person like maybe right. not forever but just for a month they can right. put it down you know and that, oh, I, that's, I, when he, that's when he knew 
we have people that have bought our guitars. Our only endorser is or endorsee is Julian Lodge. And so if you see somebody playing a Collins, they bought the Collins. They didn't, we didn't give it to them. They bought it, which, which means something, right? It means mm -hmm. they wanted it. And we have people, I see names on cards that we're building this guitar for this person. And then I see them playing somebody else's guitar and my feelings get hurt for the same reason. It's like, no, I want them playing the Collins. And, you know, there's endorsements and everything else that play into it. But, but we all feel that way. We want everybody wanting these guitars and and when people get it it's really special like bob gets it and has been a great champion of ours and there's a lot of names like that that we're real proud to be associated with and i wondered whether because obviously you've developed a model with julian large as well and obviously electrics there's like you can sort of go anywhere you want with an electric guitar um mm -hmm. flat top acoustics have a bit more of an obvious sort of perception people have of what they should be in a certain few models but you can still do what you like with them and i wonder with mandolins is is it just sort of do people just want to you know whether it's an f style or an a style basically two types of mandolin and that's it now is there is there room for development within that yeah for sure there is there's oval holes and the double points and in all kinds of room for that it's honestly not something that we have been in discussions about for the past couple of years because all the discussions revolve around trying to fill our orders. Um, yes, there's all, you can always do better or different. Uh, I don't know that you'll see us doing anything wild with mandolins in the future because, because I don't know that Bill would have. He, you know, he would tinker with the voicing and the neck set and the tension and the arches and mm. And we would try to make the best traditional style mandolins that we could. And, and we've tried different wood combinations and tried different, all of the things I mentioned before. I don't know that we are the company that's going to evolve the mandolin. I think we're just going to try to make the best ones that we can. Hmm. Famous last words. <laughs> um, but because, you know, because we haven't had any mandolin players approach us to do anything radically different or make an electric mandolin or, or whatever they would be asking. We have acoustic and electric players all the time asking for a little something. And, and we listen because we don't, we don't, we're making these guitars for the players and, and we want them to play them. And, and, and we really, really started learning that, with the Julian acoustic because Julian, the regular callings was too much for Julian. It had too much sparkle, too much. It was too powerful. It was too big. It was too much, too fast. Hmm. He wanted to, he wanted to wrestle with it a little bit. And so, uh, nobody got their feelings hurt about that, that he didn't, didn't love exactly what was coming off the line. He just thought that there could be a little, different tone to it, a little different coloring and variation. And in a way we went and that was a fun project and get to sit and listen to him play a different neck mm. on the same body and see what the neck construction does, see what the body and, and we all sat around and took notes and again, all agreed on exactly the right way to go forward based on what Julian was playing and hearing. We all heard the same thing. 
but we wouldn't have done that without his input and without him saying, maybe this is a little too much for me. And, and so the Julian acoustic is popular for the guys that it's a little too much for, which I'm not using the right words to describe that, but it's a different guitar. It looks exactly like an OM, but it's not, it's a totally different guitar. And what's different about it? How did you achieve that, that sort of different balance for him? Well, it's a lighter build. Um, it, it goes right from the beginning to wood selection and then lighter bracing, lighter build, thinner finish. Um, and then really the secret sauce is in the neck construction. Once we achieved the body that sounded like he wanted it to achieve, then we made six different necks. And I hope I'm not talking out of school. I don't think I am. We made six different necks, all the same weight pounds per board foot, all the same grain orientation, but with different internals in each neck, which changed the mass and changed the overall stiffness and then tension. Mm -hmm. And everyone, and then we would just spot glue them onto the body that we liked. And so there'd be 10 minutes between sessions while we were pulling the neck and putting the new one on and every neck sounded different to the one before it and we all sat in the conference room and julian did his julian thing and we were all taking notes not sharing taking notes and there was one that was like yeah that's it so it was the combination between that neck the lighter wood the lighter bracing the thinner finish that made the julian acoustic the om1jl what it is and Fascinating. And again, going back to when I was a young guitar builder and Bill was tinkering with the filler strip or this or that, just leave it alone, man. You got it. You never have it, right? Because yeah. we wouldn't have Julian on board because the guitar wasn't right for him. It wasn't what he was looking for. And that's fascinating because to the sort of like the average guitarist like me, thinking about what makes a guitar sound like a guitar, you know, we think about the top wood and we think about the back and sides yeah. we think about you know the bracing and we think about the bridge and like maybe we think about the nut and the saddle but and some people think about the the weight of the tuners but like just what goes into a neck is something that probably most of us don't think about that's the part that makes me crazy and i'm biased because i was built a neck guy for 10 12 years and from the very beginning the neck, even on the tours that we would give on Fridays, they would just kind of skip the neck department because they wanted to see the bodies going together. And that's the guitar. Mm. The neck is every bit as important as the body or the woods or whatever. And Bill's design is a one-way truss rod, um, which is really incredibly difficult to make, especially in a production setting. Um, so his idea was to always keep that neck under tension so the body could do what it wanted to do. And that was the old tried and true callings. And then the traditionals don't have that same neck construction because it would overpower the body. So it wouldn't be a good match. Um, the Julian's different again. And the neck has such a big part to do with the guitar sound. If you put a bad neck on a, the world's greatest box, it's not going to sound good and vice versa. They have to work together. And that's part of the brilliance of Bill's design is he designed a neck that nobody else was doing. And at the end of the day, it was just a rigid without being heavy neck that wasn't an anchor that allowed the body to do what it was going to do. 
Brilliant. And something that people don't even think of. It's the handler. It's what you carry as you go on the stage. Um, mm. It's at least half of the guitar. Well, <laughs> literally. But, yeah. you know, and then you talk about neck set inside. You can go deep. But the neck is really important, especially to our guitars. For our design. And I, I believe that you guys started you started using little plaque on your instruments pretty early compared to some people. It's been part of your setup for for a while now. Yeah, I don't know if we were early or not. Uh, I remember it started at a NAMM show years and years ago where a bunch of different makers, um, Pleck was there and they plucked a bunch of different makers' guitars and it showed you the map of what the fingerboard was doing and all that. And Bill was so impressed with it because our, our necks look great. And he was so impressed with it that he put it in the back of his head because it was a machine and Bill loved machines. And so all of a sudden he's curious. And the fact that ours looked pretty good helped. Uh, and then people started demanding it. People wanted Plex certified. And, mm. and I think that's the evolution of the Plex. I don't, I don't know how early we were compared to other builders. I, I want to say... You know, we've had it maybe 12 years. I might be way off, um, but we use it. Everything goes through the plec now, um, and the it doesn't make anything any faster. But at this point, we're using it as a tool to inform our builds. Because if a fret's a thousandth high or there's a two thousandth hole in a fingerboard, it looks gigantic. And so we can take that information and look at our process and see what happened. Hmm. Was it tooling? Was it an employee? Is this a pattern? And it can, we're using it to try to help ourselves. It doesn't make the process any faster. And so, you know, just to think about developments and, and the way the, the, the building has changed, but sort of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sort of feels like the, that Bill's original intent in building guitars was that he just didn't feel that good guitars were being built at the point he started. It was harder to find a good guitar. Yeah. And I wondered, like, you know, over the 20-odd years you've been there, but just over the time you've been involved in instrument making, if you feel like that's changed. Because, like, just from my perspective, I was a kid in the 70s and then in the 80s, and it was quite hard to buy a good instrument. Like, yeah. You, you know, you, your first guitar was sort of supposed to injure you. That was how it went. The first yeah. Guitar was supposed to strip. That was just part it's of the supposed right to hurt. Passage. Yeah. And then, and like now, there's you know, um, you can buy a playable instrument relatively easily, relatively inexpensively. Um, yeah. And I just wondered about um, what you feel's changed in terms of instrument quality, but also consistency, because a lot of the problems over the years have been you might get one great guitar for a year that sounds amazing, and the one that was made three days later sounds nothing like it. Yeah, I. I was just talking about this at the NAMM show too. I think guitars now are. We're in the next golden age. And I know that's not an original thought. Everybody talks about that, but I agree. Um, in terms of consistency, uh, I, I don't think there's many stinkers anymore. I think people have figured it out. And if they're making stinkers, they're not in business. And in terms of, and again, my mind goes right to Taylor, who, who makes different guitars than we do in a different, completely different process, but the guitars are great. And, and at the price point that they're aimed at and incredibly consistent, incredibly consistent. And 
and that's on purpose because they set up this whole process so you're getting that same guitar whether you buy it in dallas or st louis that's the guitar which is impressive for an acoustic i don't it's mind-blowing um in terms of of young builders they're doing amazing things and and if you go to the boutique builders showcase at the nam show or or poke around on instagram you can see that everybody's not just making the next telecaster people are pushing the boundaries and these young guys now i don't know where it started if it's a samoji thing or what but now they're experimenting with really thick laminated sides and really thin tops and so they're you know and of course all the alternative bracings but they're pushing the envelope trying to chase a new ideal which i think is inspiring it's not just more pearl and more abalone and look what i can do with my butt wedge it's the internal construction and there was lots of cool stuff at the nam show and for the last several years people are not just using alternative woods they're actually trying to make something new and better and so they have the opportunity to stand on bill's shoulders and use what what bill's been doing or bob or richard or any of these guys in the same way that Bill did, see what he liked about these pre-war Martins, see what didn't work, and then tweak what didn't work and maybe make it a little different in his own way. They have the opportunity to do that with what these guys did. And so it's just mm. getting better and better and better. And you talked just then about alternative woods, and that's a really interesting one because it is one way of sort of marking a point of difference. But, but as the world is, finding alternative woods that sound great is going to be a really useful thing to do as you were saying the quality of wood and the price of wood and you know the the regulations around use of certain types of wood or transportation of certain types of wood if somebody can find something that does a great job and can replace the ones that we're used to yeah that could be a game I'm, changer i'm fishing every day <laughs> and and not looking for the next brazilian but looking for something that's sustainable and i don't feel bad about using uh but that isn't a gimmick and actually makes a nice guitar and so there's there's a balancing act. If it looks like wood paneling, people aren't going to be interested. And if it doesn't sound good, I can't. Uh, I don't. It's not an ethical decision to sell it. So, you know, we have dozens of wood vendors that I'm on the phone with all the time. You know, send me what you got. Let me try it. And which is something that we haven't always been good at. We make a lot of mahogany and rosewood guitars. We're good at it. We're comfortable doing it. But this is Nully talking. This is my opinion. People have a rosewood dreadnought or a mahogany OM. And maybe there's something else that's totally a little different, but is still a great guitar. And so we're, mm. we're constantly trying. I've got two going through the line right now that are just experiments just to see how's this thing sound. Mm. And, and, if it doesn't sound any good, well, then it's R&D. And if it does sound good, okay, here we go. Maybe 10 people will like it. Maybe 50 people will like it. But but there, everybody is in the same boat. I mean, COA is crazy expensive. Everything's crazy expensive right now. And like you said, there's some woods that you just don't want to deal with as far as paperwork, transportation, legality. Um, Unfortunately, there's only so many woods that have that magic that'll make a great acoustic guitar. 
And it's funny going back to that first one that you said blew your mind and sort of started you down this path and it had a cedar top. Um, I've got a Simon Apache guitar with a cedar top that is a cheap guitar. It costs like 300 pounds or something. Um, and there's something special about it and it might be mm-hmm. that guitar, but increasingly, and I never re- even really thought about it. I don't, I don't think I even knew it had a cedar top when I got it 15 years ago. Yeah. But like it, more than once I've picked up a cedar top guitar and gone, what's this? This is nice. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, it's got a very different tonal quality and it does different things to a spruce top, but it's, a, for what it is, it's a really special guitar. I, I love them. It's not a bluegrass player's delight. You know, I'm more of a finger style guy when it comes to acoustic guitar and it's perfect for that. And mm. and if you match it with the right back and sides and put the right neck set on it and everything, there's, man, they are beautiful. It's woody without being too dry you can get some great overtones out of it i i really like cedar tops not the most popular opinion here we, we've got a lot of a lot of guys that like to play hard and it's not it doesn't have the headroom for that but yeah but you never know now i i like to play around so never say never do you get um do you get a lot of customer requests for sort of custom builds with different woods is that often what makes them a custom build that they want something you don't traditionally offer or do people just want different specs? It's mostly different specs. People want their dream guitar. Um, but we do get a lot of requests for not requests. They'll call and ask, Hey, do you guys have any of this? Cause they saw somebody else using it. And, mm-hmm. and it's either, you know, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I, I need to have two sets of something before I can release something in case something happens in build and we break the side or it cracks or something like that. I have a backup plan. And so I order things in pairs and, and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, but we will honor any request in, and a lot of time those requests point us in a new direction. As far as tone woods, we took a Macassar, Dreadnought to the NAMM show four, five, six years ago. And just as a as an eye catcher, just a Macassar Dreadnought, but Collins doesn't do that. And it it blew up. People went crazy for it. It didn't sound like a Brazilian. It sounded like a Macassar, but it was different. And that kind of started us thinking, okay, well, maybe we can branch out a little bit. And that little bit's turned into more and more. And now that I'm the wood guy, I'm really interested in sustainable stuff and reclaim stuff because my next job is to train our customers that all spruce isn't pure white. And the reclaimed spruce that I'm getting in now is better spruce than the stuff that I'm getting because it's a hundred and some years old. And so it has that thing that people that buy the torified tops are looking for but it happened naturally, and, but it's not lily white. And so uh, I'm about ready to start playing with marketing and trying to see if anybody's interested in a Collings that has a reclaimed top on it because it will sound amazing. It just won't look like in your mind's eye what that guitar should look like. It's not ugly. It's just not perfect. And that's what's beautiful about it. And it's got yeah, a story, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I have some stuff that was old wooden bridges and it's just 
to the best tap tone that you can imagine. It's just not pretty. <laughs> so that's my next but then, challenge. But then there's so many, one of the really interesting developments that I find fascinating over the past sort of decade or so is the idea of distressing stuff. So it's, you make a pristine looking thing and then make it look not pretty. And people want things that look like they've got a story and a history. And, you know, people like... Um, Alistair Atkin over here in the UK, you know, oh, yeah. free, freezes all his finishes to get him to crack. And they look Oh, great. he does such a good job at it too. Yeah. I love Alistair and I love his guitars and they do such a good job distressing those guitars. They're beautiful. Um, there's other examples from other makers that that for me go a little too far. And mm. believe it or not, we haven't, to the best of my knowledge, had a lot of people calling for us to offer distressing level one, level two, level three, um, you know, dragging chains across their tops or any of that. I don't know that people are looking for us to do that. We offer an aged finish on the Waterloo's and the electrics where we'll crack it and, and, but we don't go too far. Um, I think it, it might be a fun job for whoever it is to hmm. break those things in and make them look 70 years old, but I, I don't, we're not there yet. Alistair does it perfect. I don't know that we could do it as well as he can. I mean, presumably the best way to achieve that is just buy yourself a nice guitar and play it for four decades, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll be a better guitar for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but everybody wants everything now, and I get it. It's yeah, just yeah. Maybe, maybe not in my wheelhouse. No, I mean, no, I sit and watch videos of Brian Sutton playing his, his D28, and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's lived, and it looks like it's lived, and it looks great. You know. Yeah, that's when we but, get repairs in, and we can see old callings from the you know the '90s, and and everybody who's in Oz, the finish was different, the backstrip, the heel, the everything. In but man, they look lived in. They look so good, and they've been played for two or three decades, and they sound so open and broken in, and and dragging a wrench across your top isn't going to do that for you. No, it has the uh, it has the effect without any of the history. Yeah, no, isn't it? It's, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, like you're saying, when people do it well, it's an, it's an amazing thing to see, um, and it's you know a whole a whole new development. Um, I'd I'd like to have a chat about Bill, if that's okay. You were saying this yeah. fifth anniversary is passing, and I'm I'm sort of fascinated because Collings, obviously, it has his name on the headstock, and so much of the the sort of philosophy and ethos and, you know, it's with companies that are driven by an individual and their passion. And like you were saying, you know, just is just willingness to be passionate about something and drag you all off down the line and making the best cases in the world and then come back and do something else. And mm -hmm. um, fascinated to know sort of how you keep the best of that when, when the man isn't there, how you keep the spirit alive and yet adapt for the fact that it's not him that's, that's sort of leading it. It, you know, honestly, for maybe the past 10 years or so, Bill hadn't been incredibly involved and actively engaged in the guitar building part of it. He started racing cars, little cars, Miatas, and became fascinated with cars and started his own Collings Custom Craft, where he would make hot rods. And, oh, my God, they were gorgeous. Um so, so after he passed, it was weird that he wasn't around, but he wasn't any more a 
daily focus of the shop. It wasn't, it, it he wasn't visible at a bench every day. And so mm. the reason he was able to do that is because he had so many guys that he trusted. He's got Aaron and electrics and Clint and engineering. He had me and next Andrew and Bob, you know, he had his little experts, the guys that he had groomed and, and way more than the names I just mentioned. And, and he trusted us to do it. And, and we did. And so after he passed, it was wild that you couldn't walk down the hill and ask him a question. That was the tricky part. Mm. But between the five or 10 of us, we could all get together and answer the question. And Bill was so much bigger than life. It hasn't been hard to consider new models or consider, you know, there was no secret to what Bill would have thought of any given idea. We, we all know exactly what Bill would say after working for it for so long. Um, so that part's easy. It's, it's a committee. And like I said before, if it clicks, it clicks. And if it doesn't, it's, it's wrong. And if we're not all in agreement, then, then you're off base. And, and we've had several opportunities with the Waterloo Arch Top and I don't, the CJ45, I think, is another example, the 470 JL. Um, these all happened since Bill passed. But you would never know. Um, that core group works together on these things, and it just feels natural. I, it, I don't know if I'm explaining it well. And yeah, I, don't, totally. I, I don't mean to diminish his input to the company, but at the very end, he was a hot rod guy. And so he had it set up and he had us going in the direction that he wanted us to go. And, and we had experience doing that without him while he was still here. That sounds, like, that sounds remarkably healthy because, you know, if you found a company and it requires you to be around for every single decision, that means that you're not delegating and you're not bringing people on and you're not involving anybody in your vision and, you know, then then it is tricky to to do with somebody not being there. But it sounds like that's an incredibly sort of human and healthy way of approaching it. If, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I haven't heard it described that way. Uh, <laughs> if you were fortunate enough to be, he didn't like everybody. Um, he knew right away. He could smell it. And, and if he trusted you, you were in the circle and you had access to all the information and, and more than you could use at any given moment. And if you weren't, he didn't have really time for you. And so out of the guys over here, he had lots of guys that he trusted. And, and that is how we were able to push through because, because he would pass everything on. I mean, we would sit down and he would show me computer renderings of a cross section of a neck and say, look at this spline. It's not heel shaft headstock. It's all one line. And he would make sure that you understood what his vision was for that particular thing at that particular moment. Um, and communicating with Bill was a special skill because he would go everywhere and there'd be 30 seconds of genius and then he'd go everywhere. Um, but there were times where he would really sit down and focus. And in those moments, it's like, oh man, I got to take this in. This is, this is it. And anything from trust rod curve to, I mean, these are things from my experience. Aaron had different experiences, Clint. But between all of us, I'm not saying we can replace Bill. Nobody can replace Bill. But we have that, that information that we need to keep going. And I wish I were better with words so I could explain it better. Because Bill was 
Bill was family to me and to all of us that knew him and loved him. He was my crazy uncle, you know, and, and I'm incredibly fortunate to have worked with him. And then after him, Bruce, like I'm the luckiest guy in the world um, because I wanted that information and he could see that. And it's the same for these other guys. They, they wanted what he had and he would give it freely if he trusted you and you had to earn that trust. And, and between all of us, you know, there's a lot of us that if one of us is not feeling it, then it's not the right thing. And that's happened once with one, with one idea. Not everybody was on board. So it didn't happen. And that's and just how it's going to continue to go. And part of that, um, the sort of development of a business is learning which things not to do. Like yeah, some, some businesses get crippled by trying to do all the things you take every opportunity and Sometimes it's, you know, I, you know, for example, in the early days, Collins built some banjos. And at some point, I'm sure you took the decision that that wasn't, you know, wasn't going to be a useful thing to right. spend your time and resources on. Right. Uh, maybe or maybe he just got bored and didn't want to do it again. <laughs> you know, you just never know. But no, I don't think there's going to be Collins banjos in the future. What, what, what are we going to see in the future, do you think? Is it a case of... Um, you know, talked a bit about exploring new woods, working with players to develop sort of new instruments. Um, what is there anything in particular in the pipeline at the moment? Yeah, we're always, we have, you know, I, I can't tell you, but yeah, we have uh, two new things in the pipeline right now. And those guys' names that I mentioned are the R&D team. All the old school guys are the R&D team. And so we start with an idea and then, we prove it and then once we prove it we tweak it and once it's tweaked we sort of release it to production and, and show the guys how how it's made and what's important about it and and we've got a couple of those things in at the moment i don't know that they're ready and i don't know that it's the right thing to do to release them at this time because i need to focus on making our back orders and and if i release a new model People don't want their new model in 2025. Mm. They want it now, which would mean I'd have to push off some dealers and make three of these a week. Um, that's not up to me, but I think we all would agree that now at this exact time is not the right time. But for those of us that have been here for a long time, that's really the fun part of the job is making new stuff and seeing if it works like you think it's going to work. And we're always doing that because it keeps us, it keeps us moving and engaged and, and, you know, it, it's what you got in the business for to begin with. It, it's inspiring. And, and I think Bill would love the stuff that we're working on. I know he would. Like I said, I'm in a melancholy mood, dude. <laughs> Five years today. And I, it's just Bill, Bill, Bill. I miss and it. That, I bet you do. And it's, you know, I think that, but what you just said sort of takes us back to where we started really and the idea that you, like very quickly at the beginning of this this chat, you said, you know, I don't know everything. I'm not, like, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still on the journey. I'm still, and that's really mirrored by like the guitarists I talked to and the mandolin players I talked to and like everybody who somebody like me would look at and go, you've arrived. You've, you've reached that point where you just know what you're doing. 
all of them say, no, nope, I'm still learning. I'm still like, I'm just further ahead on the journey, but I'm still traveling and I'm still wandering off down blind alleys and coming back. And I'm still, you know, yeah. fascinated by the things that I don't know how to do. And, yeah. And that's what keeps it interesting. A hundred percent. And once you know everything, you can't grow anymore. And I learned it at guitar school early. My guitar instructor said, you're never going to know anything. You're just day one and you're going to leave here with two guitars and think you know everything. And then in six months, you're going to look at those guitars and you're going to think they're terrible. And then in 10 years, you're going to be embarrassed. And then, you know, so it's just continually just trying to get better. And, and that's what we're doing. And I really do think our guitars look better every day. And that's, that's what it's all about is, is not stagnating and pushing, 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 pushing. And the whole industry is doing that. And we're certainly doing it here. Um, and just trying to do it in the, in the smartest way possible, little, little bit at a time, because it doesn't happen instantly. There's no instant gratification. It's, you know, we did that with the CJ 45. We made a number of prototypes on that CJ 45 until we found what we were looking for because we kept building them like a colleagues. You know, this is what we know how to do. And thinking outside of that box, which is what the artists are pushing us to do, is a different skill than the one that you use every day. And so that was, I don't remember how many prototypes we made, but you can't just make a prototype and then listen to it. You do it and then it goes through the steps and then you get to hear it a month later or whatever. And I don't remember where I started, but that's the fun <laughs> part of it. You know, I we think... didn't just go, here's your CJ 45. It's yeah. tweak, 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 tweak. Don't like this. Do like this. And I think when I, you know, did when I was chatting to you about doing this interview and I, I went and did some more reading about Collins and listened to some interviews and, I think maybe the, the sort of phrase or sentiment that came up most in all of it was just the idea that there are no shortcuts. No. But that, that just, that's something that sort of went through every interview, everything I read, everything that just came across as like, this is so, you know, it ties back to the idea that you fix things the customer would never see. Just this, this idea that you're only going to get there a bit at a time, but you will get there. There are no yeah. instant fixes or... No. And, and I mean, to go back to the idea of there are no shortcuts here, I was giving a tour to another guitar builder yesterday. And, and so we were tapping plates that were, weren't braced. And, and then I gave him a plate that was braced so he could hear the tap. And he was looking at the top that was braced. And it's an X-braced guitar. And he's looking. I was like, what are you looking for? And he's like, but everything here is just... He was looking for extra braces or missing braces, or he was looking for tricks. And there's no tricks. It's just honest guitar building at, at its very core. There's no, he, he was looking at the, oh, what are you doing? It's just an X brace, man. We just do it as well as we possibly can. And, and then try to do the next one even better. And, and that's, I guess that's the best analogy for, what makes callings callings it's that it's just there's no tricks there's no shortcuts it's labor and it's craftsmanship and it's passion it's what these guys do and i think that's probably a lovely note to to leave it on that's kind of a 
kind of beautiful way of uh, of summing it up. I think I think that sort of distills everything we've talked about in the last hour. Right on, um, man. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been an absolute joy. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.